0: Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Philip Lee, one of Ireland's fastest growing corporate law firms and expert advisors at the heart of the Dublin and London startup fintech and crypto communities. On the show this week, we've got Tina Baker-Taylor.
1: I'm Tina Baker-Taylor, the Chief Policy Officer at the Chamber of Digital Commerce
0: sharing her story on her journey into blockchain and digital assets. In this chat, Tina and I talk through the steps in her career that led her into crypto, her view on the critical focal points for the digital asset industry over the next few years, how she gives back as a mentor and advocate, and her view on what makes a great Web3 founder. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Hey, Tina, how you doing?
1: I'm great, Pete. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Awesome to have you back on the show. Listen, I've been thinking back to, or sorry, actually awesome to have you on the show for the first time. I know we've been talking about this for a little while, but I was trying to think back to when we were first introduced and that was our friend, Colin Platt.
1: It was Mr. Colin Platt.
0: Yes. Shout out to Colin. So that was when you were coming over to Dublin for the Women in Tech Awards in 2019, the Blockchain Leader of the Year right?
1: That's right. Yes. I was shocked to win that award. I thought it was just going to be a fun evening with a bit of Irish crack, but it turned out a little differently.
0: I know we never did get that pine in, but you know, we, we will, we will one of these days. And I, I knew of you before that, because I had heard you on an 11FS podcast or two, always entertaining. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Thanks. Well, I I try my best. The 11FS podcast definitely used to give us quite a lot of leeway. Around how far we could go with some of the banter, so absolutely, we'll see, we'll see how much banter you have today. Pete.
0: Okay, we'll get into it then. <laughs> why don't you, why, why don't you, to get us started, walk us through your backstory and how you got to this point? Yeah,
1: sure. Okay, so career wise, I started my career in banking. And originally, like the first kind of big girl job, I was working on IPOs and debt offering roadshows during the dot-com boom, which was a super crazy time in finance for anybody that remembers that period. And for me, it, it's not completely dissimilar to what's happening now in the crypto space in a lot of ways, really. So working within those deal teams led me to become pretty adept at developing narratives around brand and value propositions. And so when I left, I left banking and I went into hospitality, which was kind of an interesting move. But I was working in kind of marketing and branding completely across the entire sales cycle of a business so I worked for um, Hilton for quite a number of years and a number of different departments and what I learned was you know how to talk to many different customer types I learned a lot about product development cross-selling customer segmentation all of those like really critical kind of building blocks of building any kind of you know, profitable, successful business. And I was also really fortunate to work on some really huge events and sponsorship activations like I worked on a couple of Olympic games. I worked on a World Cup. So that was pretty cool. And then when I went back into finance, it was originally kind of within the marketing and communications area. But this was a point in time when most banks were looking internally at what they then called their digital money strategy. It's funny to kind of look back and and hear that now. Yeah, the digital money strategy that gonna be. And so whilst I was at City, this was one of the key things that I worked on. Not just from, you know, a narrative perspective, but you know, what did that actually mean? And there wasn't anybody within the bank that was working on that. So I had a lot of scope to kind of figure out what that should look like. And I was in transaction banking. So this obviously includes things like liquidity management and payments, etc. So that really led me to get involved in a number of kind of side of the desk and passion projects around financial inclusion. And that's when, you know, I learned a lot about the disparity between, you know, people that don't have great access to financial services and how our current financial infrastructure is, is really efficient at keeping people poor. And so that's when I learned about Bitcoin. And that kind of started on the path that I'm on now.
0: Okay. That's interesting that it was a financial inclusion or not. I got that words overused, but it's that, Hey, wait a second. Not everybody in this planet can eat. And I think there's a stat out there that it's cost you a thousand pounds, you know, pound sterling a year to be poor, right? Because you don't have access to the same type of financial services as most Mm -hmm. others. And you got to pay through the nose to get, to get it. 100%.
1: 100%. Well, and I think too, one of the, the critical things that happened kind of during that period also was I moved from the US. And so, you know, I was, you know, raised in Beverly Hills. I had a, what I now see as a very narrow view of kind of the way the West of the world worked. And when I moved to Europe, obviously, I had, you know, a brighter or a broader scope of, of experience. But equally, you don't necessarily consider that even within kind of developed economies that, you know, in the UK, we have 1.7 million unbanked people. Some of that's by choice. But when you factor in some of the underbanked, which means that, you know, you can't get a credit card for less than, you know, 30% APR, or you can't get a loan to buy a car to get you to, you know, a a mid-level paying job. You know that it starts to become a lot clearer that the system is broken, and indeed, it's it's expensive to be poor.
0: Yeah, yeah. Interesting entry point for you, and that, was that the your first step into this space? Was that with Coinfloor?
1: Yes. So I left HSBC. I was in a really interesting position there. So I was the the global head of client strategy for the transaction banking capital markets and working on a number of different kind of proof of concepts. And I was working across kind of enterprise blockchain. And so there was lots of stuff about the tech that I really loved. But you know as as you may remember, working for a large financial institution yeah. back in the day, it was very slow going. And I had done a few kind of, again, kind of pet projects with the GSMA around mobile money, the Better Than Cash Alliance out of the UN, looking at kind of financial inclusion projects. And the one thing that became really cognizant of is that to develop services to provide better access to the underbanked, for example, it's expensive. It's expensive to develop value propositions and run them unless you have kind of a, a larger client base that's kind of paying for the innovation to get it off the ground. So one of the things that I learned was that to get some of these projects developed, you you know needed to have a kind of big flagship client or a client base that was going to pay for the infrastructure build. And that wasn't always lining up. And so I felt like there was a lot of opportunities in blockchain from a technology perspective that could solve a lot of these problems. They weren't mature yet, mm. but the thing that was live and, and operating in the wild was you know, crypto specifically. And so I thought, yeah, I'm going to make the leap and uh, start working in crypto full time. And I went to CoinFloor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because that was kind of my same realization is that I read the Bitcoin white paper. Then a year later, I read the Ethereum white paper and I'm like, this isn't happening within a financial institution and I'm totally enamored by it and I need to go do something about it. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. And it really kind of didn't matter. So when I started at CoinFloor, which is a primarily UK based or UK focused Bitcoin exchange. We, we worked on a number of different kind of products and, and launched some pretty cool things. But the the role was originally, you know, the, the chief marketing officer, but, you know, in a tiny company, you do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I very quickly became, you know, our, our head of regulatory affairs. You know, we didn't have a, a head of product. So that became something that fell into my remit as well. And so, yeah, there was, it was a great opportunity to kind of learn about the space whilst I was already learning about the space. Right. So that's, that's one of the key things that drives me nuts when I interview people and I say, okay, why do you want to work in crypto? And often people will say, oh, cause I think it's the future. Mm-hmm. And I think, okay. <laughs> and you know, I really want to learn about this space. And I think, so I started to say to people. Why don't you start now? Start yeah. learning about this space now. There's a million things you could read or listen to or watch. It wasn't like when I went into crypto, right? The now you're inundated with information. But but yeah, so I, I was learning in real time, but I hopefully was kind of adding to the knowledge that i had built up anyway and, and putting that into practice
0: yeah and then you took that into global digital finance and i remember when that kicked off because i was working with 11fs at the time yeah back in 2018 i think and you did that for a little while and that then led to the next couple of things that you did yeah
1: yeah so what what i think has been really interesting about my path is that a lot of things happen simultaneously. And I think that happened just because it was the organic moment in time, in the policy evolution of where we're getting to today. So when I was at CoinFloor, the UK government was just beginning to look at digital assets in more depth. And there was a lot of opportunity for the private sector to engage with MPs and regulators at that time. And we took that opportunity really seriously. So, I think as a community in the UK as well, we realized that we needed to organize and to start to actively advocate for the industry. And so I was originally part of the founding team that set up Crypto UK, which is the UK's trade body for digital assets. I also drafted uh, written evidence um, on the benefits of crypto, which led to CoinFloor being asked to give evidence at the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee, which was kind of the main hearings that we were having at that time, which then led to being asked to routinely act as a resource for the UK's Crypto Asset Task Force, which emerged from those hearings. And that was working with the FCA, HM Treasury and the Bank of England. And then simultaneously, you know, there was a tiny handful of people. I mean, there was like, I don't know, 15, 20 of us. And Simon at 11FS was one of them that, you know, we were kind of sitting around talking to each other saying, you know, this ICO thing, mm, I don't know, this is going to be tricky. And, you know, what could the industry do to self-regulate itself whilst policy was being developed? And so that turned into global digital finance, which is now, you know, hundreds of members and a global industry body that advocates for digital assets and blockchain with you know bodies like FATF and OECD and IOSCO so kind mm-hmm. of at a global level looking at cross border policy and standards for crypto so yes i ended up then leaving coinfloor and running gdf for a couple of years so it does, it's not your traditional kind of policy background. I do think that the skills that I had from a communications background transferred really well. So, you know, talking to regulators or lawmakers is the same thing as talking to a customer. You just need to kind of tailor your message to the audience.
0: That's a really interesting point. I never thought of it that way because Mm -hmm. so many people are just like, oh, I need to go talk to a regulator. I I need to be extremely cautious because you can't say the wrong thing. But that's the same thing that happens when you're talking to a customer.
1: Yeah. Well, and if you think about it too, the, the other thing that my observation as a non-lawyer in this space, and most people that have a job like mine are lawyers. I think I have a very different perspective because I have not been trained as a lawyer. And that's not to say that one is good and one is bad. Right. But I do think, you know, when you're, you're trained in that there's a practiced way of thinking and I have not been trained that way. So I think about things from a commercial standpoint, which is, you know, what's the outcome that I want? And I work backward from there, right? And the whole kind of decision tree, you know, framework around, well, if I do this, then this might happen. If I do this, then this might happen. And then the steps along the way, I would build into like any kind of comms plan, right? And so that's the way that I've kind of approached working with policymakers. And I think because um, I don't go in to these conversations feeling fearful, I go into the conversation feeling practical and pragmatic about trying to get to an outcome that I think is reasonable. I think sometimes my message potentially lands differently.
0: Okay. Okay. That's interesting. And then going from GDF then into what was next Binance, or actually as some of the folks on the East Coast and West Coast of the US, those that pronounce finance, finance, I've heard them refer to Binance as Binance. And I'm like, that's just so wrong. Okay, (laughs) don't do that.
1: I have have a good friend that calls DeFi DeFi, even though I've told him it makes my teeth hurt when he does it. Yeah,
0: Yeah, yeah. I got a good story about someone referring to DeFi as DeFi and then the feedback he got from someone on that and what that then led him to do but that's a story for another day he knows who he is and he knows the story but anyway listen so binance i will call it binance and then crypto.com and then leading on to what you're doing right now and just walk us through that
1: sure So, yes, I led the UK operations for the expansion of both of those companies, Binance and Crypto.com, into the UK and Europe for for Binance. And that those roles were really um, an extension of localizing a global business into a market, uh, a fit for purpose kind of market segment in the UK and Europe. And I think what's critically important about companies as they look to move into new markets and get regulated in those markets. And I think that's where we're starting to see quite a lot of these localization strategies as regulatory frameworks become clearer and or restrictive, right? So in the case of the UK, um, following AMLD5, the FCA required crypto asset firms to register. It's not an authorization. It's not a license. Mm It's just basically permission to operate, but you have to go through this registration um, process. And we won't go into that because that's that's been- I'm familiar um, with it. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, a little bit bumpy that process over the last couple of years. But in both of those roles, my my job was to take a, a global business, boil it down into what was going to be regulatorily, you know, appropriate for the region, look at UIUX and customize that. For you know companies that originated outside of Europe for a European audience, and really work with policymakers to take those licenses. So kind of set up and the starting of the laying the foundation for those businesses to to move into the UK and Europe. Okay. Um, yeah. So super great fun. One of the things I did at Binance was kind of develop a, a standalone platform similar to Binance US for Binance UK, and I'm sure that will come to market at some point. And that was, you know, something I hadn't done before. And That was really exciting. What transpired during that time, though, too, was a real stark awakening that some of the policy initiatives that I had been working on, kind of in theory, a couple of years prior we're now translating into pretty onerous licensing and application processes that weren't exactly working, right? And so I think the the bumpy start to the FCA registration is a good example of taking something in theory putting it into practice, realizing that you don't have a methodology from which to evaluate these firms and then it becoming quite difficult, right, for both parties, the regulator and the industry. And so I kind of just felt like, you know, this was a critical moment uh, for the digital asset industry globally, and that I could kind of use my skills in a way that helped the industry more broadly if I went back into the policy space.
0: I gotcha. I gotcha. And do you see, I mean, you know, talking through this, Tina, kind of see your career in three parts, right? Do you see your role with the Chamber of Digital Commerce, which we'll get to in a minute, as a continuation of Phase 3 or as a new Phase 4?
1: No, I still think it's probably a continuation of Phase 3, okay. which is kind of, like I said, all happen simultaneously and organically. Yeah, I don't want to commit to Phase 4 because okay. I think, you know, there, there still may be something left left in the tank. That, you know, might be the phase four later on down the road.
0: Okay. Well, tell us about the Chamber of Digital Commerce and your role there, yeah?
1: Sure. So the Chamber of Digital Commerce is really the longest established association or trade body representing blockchain and digital assets. It was established in 2014 by our founder, Perian Boring, with a mission to promote the acceptance and use of crypto and blockchain technology pretty broadly. So today we represent the world's leading innovators, operators, and investors in the blockchain ecosystem. And I think that we are known for, certainly over the last couple of years, have consistently advocated for regulatory clarity for digital assets to allow innovation to flourish, which also takes into account consumer protections and and, and market integrity. And right now, especially in the U.S., the the current legal uncertainty has been really treacherous for market participants. And we're seeing a lot of movement around people potentially leaving the U.S. or setting up operations elsewhere to hedge against potentially policy decisions that may be detrimental to innovation. And, you know, if that continues, I think it has the potential to really harm consumers and certainly the market and innovation overall. So, like I said, I think that we're at a pretty crucial inflection point within the regulatory landscape, not just in the U.S., but a- across the globe. But we are starting to see other markets kind of get their arms around this. And I think that the markets that don't are really at risk of losing talent and tax income, right?
0: Yeah. Hey, everyone, this is Pete. Let me tell you about the folks at Philip League. Few years ago, I was at my first venture capital industry dinner in Dublin, and honestly, I felt a bit lost. I bumped into Andrew Tazali, one of the partners at Philip Lee. He bought me a pint, introduced me to the team, and they took me under their wing. That take you under their wing approach has been what I've heard consistently from fintech and crypto startups who I know have worked with Philip Lee in Dublin and London to help them wrap the right legal framework around their business, fundraising, and regulatory needs, and I can't recommend them enough. Get in touch with the team at PhilipLee.ie or on moneyneversleeps.ie slash philiplee to learn more. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about it this morning. I was listening to a podcast, as I tend to do when I'm out on my walk in the morning, and it was the Tim Ferriss podcast where he had Chris Dixon from A16Z mm-hmm. and Naval Ravikant from Angelist. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about this context of... How are different countries going to get it right? And I started thinking about, it's become kind of a common analogy that people talk about 1849 and the gold rush, right? Yeah. Everyone heading west for the riches, right, that are out there. And the most sensible minds are those that are selling the picks and shovels. But I kind of thought about it a bit differently. That's not really the gold rush. It's more like the 200 years or 300 years from the 1600s through to the early 1900s where everyone – they. they This massive emigration out of Europe and into the new world, Mm -hmm. right? Into the Americas. And that it wasn't just, hey, I need to go out to California and dig gold. It was that your ideals had been disenfranchised. Yes. Right? And that there was a different way to form a company. There was a different way to enable financial services, a different way for societies to engage with each other. Let's go do that virtually, Okay, and looking at the US response to this right now, I look at the US a lot differently than I did 20 years ago when I left. Mm -hmm. And I see it a bit differently on the map. But in thinking about this global context right now of this chaos that we're in, where do you see this going in terms of what we need to get right in the digital asset and blockchain space over the next few years for this to all go swimmingly? Or will it?
1: Well, I think it definitely can. One thing that I like to remind people, you know, so you you have critics that say, well, nobody's using Bitcoin to mm. for payments, right? So so Bitcoin failed. And my response to that is, you know, that's you're placing an awful lot of pressure and expectation on the very first thing. No in no other industry is the very first. We're not using America online to get onto the internet anymore. Yeah right and that is not to say that that bitcoin will be obsolete i personally don't think that will ever happen i think bitcoin will be here forever but when you create something from scratch as satoshi did you have an idea of how it can be used but it doesn't always turn out exactly as you envision right and so what we're seeing now is that bitcoin for example is an excellent store of value Right. If you look at, you know, the, the return on investment over you know, the 13 years that Bitcoin's been around, it's very difficult to argue that Bitcoin has not been um, a good investment. So does that mean that it's a failure because you can't use it as a payment system? I, I don't think so. And then what we've seen is kind of the evolution of, OK, so, you know, this programmable money is cool. What else could we do? And then, you know, Ethereum entered the scene. And then, and then, and then, right? Mm-hmm. And so over time, you would expect, you know, just like we're not using iPods. iPods were the coolest thing in the world when they came yeah, out. I remember when I first saw an iPod and it could like hold 250 songs. And I thought, oh my God, I have to have that. That is the coolest thing. And I remember at the time it was really expensive, right? That's like 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, but it was it was like 25 CDs. I know in your pocket, but it, was,
1: but it was still, it was like, you know, am I going to spend 600 bucks for that? Because, you know, 600 bucks then is like 800 bucks now. And you yeah. know, it was a lot. I know. And it was one of those things that was really cool, but you didn't need it. Right. And it kind of felt the same way when the iPad came out, I was like, I have a laptop. Why do I need this? So some things kind of take their time to kind of permeate and we're not using iPods with click wheels anymore, mm-hmm. right? And so does that mean that the iPod was a failure? No, of course not. It, it, it spurred a a series of innovations that have led us to having, you know, very powerful computers in our pocket
0: every yep. day, yep. right?
1: So what's it going to take? Um I think the one thing from a policy perspective is understanding that innovation does take time. And that means giving it kind of room to to grow and breathe and kind of figure out what some of these things are actually going to be used for. And I, I, I do think that this period of time, so if I look at kind of this bull market compared to the last bull market that we had, there's a major difference in that the first bull market was really spurred on by speculation, right? Number go up, number go up, number go up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of the ICO boom. And then a bit of a correction, obviously. And this bull has been really spurred by building, by innovation, by cool stuff that you can use. And so, you know, if we do enter, you know, a, a I'm not going to say a bear, but, you know, if, we, if the market does kind of, correct or stabilize, however you want to describe it, all of that stuff that's been built will still be there. Absolutely. And that's materially different than the last time. So that's really exciting to me. I think a couple things need to happen for us to really mainstream. One, our communication around why we're here, what we're doing, who benefits and how needs to be better. It needs to be more consistent. And we need to be able to tell that story succinctly to the press who influence, you know, the public and policymakers to consumers and to regulators. And ideally, it would be great if the industry could, and we're better about it today than we were before, but we're still not great. You know, we still have a lot of kind of infighting amongst the industry, and we're just still too small to be fighting with each other, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, again, the industry has matured around governance and accountability, but we still have things happening in the DeFi space around, you know, like rug pulls. And, you know, there's still, you know, there's still kind of some shenanigans going on. I wouldn't say it's as prolific as it was during the ICO boom. For people to really feel trust in using some of these DeFi protocols, for example, you know, some of this stuff has to stop or at least be able to be managed for, right? So that these things can't happen. And again, I think we're getting better code reviews, you know, governance mechanisms, et cetera. And then I think the third thing is, We need to do what we can do to remove the friction. And that's two parts for me. So, you know, if I'm going to use a DeFi protocol to stake something or to request a loan, end to end, that process has a lot of steps and it's not easy, right? So if I were to like sit down and I'm not talking about like my parents, if I were to sit down and have my brother who doesn't know anything about this, go end to end and set up a and a wallet and then a MetaMask and, you know, buy some ETH and then, you know, put it on this platform and, you know, do all this stuff, right? He would probably go, this is like too difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do this, right? So that needs to be simplified. And then from removing the friction from the regulatory perspective I think we talk a lot about well the technology allows us the opportunity to do this and do that and manage AML more effectively and to you know incorporate digital identity so you know that we don't have to kyc people across all these platforms and and really improve the way that we handle governance and AML and kyc in general nobody's mm-hmm. building those things to do that right so when I sit down with a regulator and they say, well, can't the technology deliver a solution that would do X? And, you know, conceivably, yes, yes, it could, but people don't necessarily want to build those things because they're not sexy and they're not going to make like, you know, the, the windfall of cash that, that something else might make. But, you know, if we had those solutions in place that really did revolutionize the way we handle The prevention of illicit finance. Yeah, that's
0: that's interesting because it's like you've got a very talented founder in this space and they're thinking about, will I build a network where I bring together a community and that community is represented in the value of the network and the token that represents the network and I can build something that is useful for individuals, for people around the world, right? Versus am I going to build a B2B reg tech on top of crypto? Right? Which one yeah. is more sexy? I think that's what you're saying, right? Which one feels more aligned with whatever your ideals may be in this space? Is 100%. that what you're saying? Yeah.
1: yeah, And I think that founders, you know, the best founders build a solution to a problem they've experienced, right? So mm-hmm. at some point, you know, somebody that can code, if I could code, I would build it, right? but I can't. So you know, at some point somebody somebody will realize that they have the skills and the passion to solve, what is basically an infrastructure problem. But, you know, if you've ever bought a fixer upper house, you know, your first inclination is to make it look better. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you start kind of painting and wallpapering and, you know, putting, you know, new floor in whatever, and you don't fix the plumbing and the floor joists and, you know, the infrastructure pieces, you're building kind of on top of crap. Right. And so You don't see it. You don't see the plumbing and you don't see new electrics, but they're integral. If you're going to put this investment on top of renovating a house that makes it actually valuable.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I'm kind of thinking of something here that like, you know, when you look at DeFi and the, there's no intermediaries, Mm -hmm. the idea is trust the code, not the intermediary, right? There is no intermediary. Trust the code. I'm thinking there's something on the horizon, which will solve the reg tech of crypto that is trust the code, not the third party. And I think there's something coming there. That's just a guess. Uh, Well,
1: I hope so. And, you know, the trusting of the code, again, when you have a few companies that understand how to run a code audit, for example, Mm -hmm. and this is not my area of expertise, Mm -hmm. I have heard that you know you get in line and it's like a year from now. Yeah. It's like trying to get a builder. Yeah, <laughs> like we can yeah, get no. a builder in the UK, but and people can't get code review because these people are so busy.
0: Oh, I hear you. I hear you. it's like trying to get a painter in Dublin right now. It's ridiculous. Right. Yeah,
1: exactly. You know,
0: we we got we, we got a new couch coming in and we got to wait for the painter first. And you know, but that first world problems. Listen, speaking of founders, like you were just touching on, I know that you are involved in a lot of mentoring and advocacy in general with Mm -hmm. Crypto Connect, She256, Like-Minded Females, Global Blockchain Convergence. What is it that you take from these experiences into your day to day?
1: So a few of the organizations that I am committed to are very specific in trying to create more opportunities for women in tech specifically. So I think that tech has been one of those areas like early finance, where for a myriad of reasons that are more sociology related mm-hmm. um, than we're going to get into today they haven't attracted or haven't necessarily been welcoming to women yeah and crypto is one of these unique opportunities where everybody's new right the industry's only been around for 10 years there isn't this kind of legacy of you know an old boys network or you know the way we've always done things and so I think it is a really Incredible opportunity for anyone, but especially for women who may be looking at kind of, you know, changing their their careers and using skills that they've built in other areas to get involved in, in tech or finance, either one, because it's a really nice convergence of both of them. So the time that I spend with those organizations is more about education, what's happening in the space, where the opportunities lie, again, around kind of communication, translating skills, being able to communicate how what you've done before is relevant in this new landscape of decentralized finance. Totally, And and really also just trying to empower people to feel confident to jump off the cliff. Really. I I did it. It worked out for me. I see a lot of opportunities in this industry. And I think that again, people can be a little bit nervous when, you know, we have press that doesn't have a lot of nuance around Bitcoin's boiling the ocean or, you know, Bitcoin's only used for criminal activities, you know, those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. people are curious, but they just need more information and education and confidence that the skills that they have will be relevant and then a little push. So so that's kind of what what I do there. Okay. And then with organizations like GBC and Crypto Connect, they're really focused on Again, kind of engaging with each other and like-minded females also is around kind of supporting the network that allows you to grow a business, Mm -hmm. right? So all of these are around networking and growth opportunities. And I know from my personal experience that, you know, kind of the more people, you know, then you're kind of one or two steps removed from maybe somebody that might be able to help you or give you some advice or steer you in another direction or have a different perspective than you might have. And that's another incredible part of this industry that people are really still open door, right? That totally. That's the one thing that I think is super incredible. You can Get referred to somebody, somebody introduces you to somebody, and they will get on a call with you and, you know, hear your idea or, you know, talk through a problem. They don't know you, but we're all kind of in this together. And so there's this kind of extended community that I think is really powerful. And so things like Crypto Connect are focused on supporting that type of activity.
0: It's great. It's great. And it, you know, when you're in this space, you know, and I, I it was the same podcast that I was listening to this morning, Chris Dixon said. He's never met someone in this space who is both very well-informed and also skeptical.
1: Yes, very true. So the more you know, I think that the deeper down the rabbit hole you go, right? So I do think that it is, again, being able to be a resource or providing access to other people who are a better resource than me in areas of, of expertise that aren't mine is like I, I enjoy being a connector because there's so much to learn, there's so much to know, and there's so many niches in this industry, how you know people can get involved in, and build cool stuff. It's great to be a part of encouraging that community to thrive.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's still small enough. We are still early in this space. Just thinking about mentoring in general, as I mentioned to you, I'm leading the Launchpool Web3 Techstars Accelerator here in Dublin. I'm thrilled to be leading it. What do you think are some of the qualities or leading indicators of a fantastic founder in the web3 space?
1: So, the best founder stories, the ones that have moved me, which, you know, create an emotional story that I think moves customers and, you know, gets people excited about a project are when a founder solves a problem that they've experienced themselves. Mm-hmm. And so when you, you know, hear these stories about people that kind of, you know, didn't have access to this or, or couldn't get that, and they thought, you know what, screw it, I'm going to go and build it myself. And, or people who have, you know, maybe worked in an industry kind of doing things the old way and thought, you know what, there's got to be a better way to do this. And these people aren't going to let me do it. So I'm going to go and build my own thing and, and try and fix this from the inside I think those stories are really powerful. Mm -hmm. So from a founder perspective, I think what I would be looking for are people that are really passionate about the problem they're trying to solve, not necessarily the thing that they're trying to build. And sometimes I think that people get their messaging a bit conflated, right? So, you know, my advice for founders is, you know, tell me why this is important to you. Don't tell me about the widget. Like, I actually don't care about the thing that you're building. Tell me about the problem you're trying to solve. Who is this a problem for? You know, why has it been like this for this, you know, length of time? Like, why does this problem exist? And, you know, what's the upside of solving this problem? And that's how you get people to like really emotionally care about your project. And then once that happens, then you kind of engender passion, whether that's from your team or your VCs or your co-founders. And I think that's the catalyst that propels startups into, you know, potentially unicorns. It's it's the passion piece.
0: Do you think there is a relationship between how deeply experienced someone is with a problem they're solving and their level of humility as a founder?
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. So I think the the other key quality that I've seen with founders that succeed is self-awareness. So, you know, is that always being humble? I think we kind of throw that word around a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, people are like, oh, you know, I'm so humble, or it's important that we hire people that are humble. And 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 yes, humility is, is absolutely a virtue. But being self-aware and understanding that maybe you're not always you know, feeling benevolent or, or humility and being able to internally manage for that and develop empathy and really kind of lean into being empathetic. I guess having that tool in in your tool chest around, yeah, self-awareness. Who are you? How are you showing up in the world? How do other people experience you? And then being able to, you know, basically tailor your message To your audience that's super critical and i think that a lot of founders and and so maybe this is where humility becomes kind of the the nomenclature that we go to is if you kind of show up and and you are who you are in every situation with every audience you're you're not going to reach as many people as you might if you can take a step back and and kind of look at it from a position of i'm here to solve a problem i'm here to be of service is not of interest to you as opposed to here, I'm solving this problem. It's this cool thing and you should learn about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, th- this, this was the clincher for me, Tina, of this chat. And that this understanding that being humbled by a problem so much so that you really want to solve it. You need that knowledge. You need that experience. But if you're solving for X, there's, you know, solving for Y, they're solving for Z and A, B, C, D, E, and F, and knowing which ones you can actually solve. Mm -hmm. And those that you can't, it takes a huge amount of self-awareness. I love that.
1: Well, and and also I think the other key thing that, you know, founders also get stuck into is somebody asked me this once pretty recently, actually, when I was talking through an idea that I thought, you know, had some legs and they said, let me stop you and just ask you, do you want to run this and be the CEO of this thing? Do you want to found this thing or do you just want it to exist in the world? Mm. And I thought, that is a really good question. And I need to think about that because those are two different roles to play. One is more kind of advisory and, you know, strategic and supportive. And the other one is, you know, very operational and, you know, daily doing the grind. Right. And a lot goes into where you are, whether it's in your career, in your personal life, you know, you, people change. Right. And so I think you can be a founder that starts a thing and five years in exceed your level of expertise or, you know, you hire the right people and, you know, it's complementary, and you grow together. But I think sometimes people found the thing and then they think that, you know, they have to be the one that kind of mm. takes it to the promised land. And that's not always you the case. don't need K. to be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's re- re- knowing knowing what you're good at, self-awareness. Yeah. You know, and, and not feeling like you have that pressure on you to take this to a 10 year story that if there's a point in time where you feel someone else is better suited to do that, there's lots of analogies that come out of the traditional tech space don't necessarily apply to the to the digital asset space with this that we could talk for hours on. But yeah, yeah, that's critical.
1: I think so. And I think that it's um, it's, it's self-awareness, but also if you go back to the reason that you started this thing in the first place was because you wanted to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Solving the problem should be the paramount driver. And so if you get to a point where bringing in someone else or a team of people or doing a merger with someone else, or if solving the problem is your key goal, not, you know, making a bunch of money and being a CEO, then I think those are the businesses that end up kind of transcending what they anticipated, what they, what they set out to do because they're mission focused.
0: I love it. I love it. No, that this is you. I I feel another mentorship role coming on for you here, Tina. So. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that afterwards though. Listen, our, our final question on this podcast is what is something that people wouldn't expect to know about Tina Baker Taylor?
1: Something people
0: wouldn't expect to know. You already told us that you were you were born in Beverly Hills, and I'm not sure if your zip code was 90210 or not. But
1: Well, I was actually born in Washington State, but I grew up in Beverly Hills, and my zip code was 90210. Awesome. Um, but that's not that interesting, is no, it?
0: No, no. There's something no. more than that.
1: I have four brothers and no sisters, which I completely attribute all of my resiliency to.
0: I can see that I can definitely see that my daughter has two brothers and no sisters and she is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will use the word resilient with my daughter right now and I'll leave it at that. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So that's, um, that's maybe something, you know, you don't talk about your family, but they've definitely enabled me to keep showing up.
0: Absolutely. Oh, I totally see that. All right. Well, listen, Tina, Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Really appreciate it. It was great to get into this chat. I I, I feel more of a conversation coming between us after this.
1: Brilliant. It's great to have uh, the time to chat with you, Pete. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thank you. That does it for this week, folks. A big thanks to Tina Baker-Taylor for opening up her mind to help us figure out why she does what she does. Links to get in touch with Tina and the Chamber of Digital Commerce are on our website at moneyneversleeps.ie. So check us out online. If you like what you heard, we would sincerely appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening on, as it helps others to find the show. And remember, Money Never Sleeps is spelled as all one word. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching a year old podcast. As for me, I'm an early stage startup investor and advisor focused on fintech and digital assets. If you'd like to talk to me about your business, drop me a line on info at moneyneversleeps.ie. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya!
1: Money never